Abba Father, we praise you and we thank you for this time where we can come together as your body, the church, to hear your word and receive your sacrament, Lord. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, break upon us, break upon our minds, break upon our hearts, and help us give us your gospel, give us Jesus. Lord, we need you, we desire you, we worship you. We pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Over the next two weeks, uh, I'll be preaching, as Caleb is on vacation, and we're going to be looking at three different miracles in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark that demonstrate that he is the Lord and Savior of the universe. And this week, we read the story of Jesus calming the sea. Now, oftentimes, this passage is read as a great comfort for followers of Jesus in times of peril and hardship, and it's understandable. It is a, a story of comfort. But however... In Mark, that's not the primary purpose of this passage. In this passage, Jesus reveals himself as the Lord God, creator and redeemer, to his unbelieving disciples. To see this fleshed out in our passage, I need to offer a little context, and this will also function as context for the next two sermons. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is in a conversation with the religious leaders of the day, and they accuse him of being possessed by a demon. And in this, his rebuttal of their accusation, he makes this statement. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In this passage, Satan is the strong man. And Jesus is the stronger man who comes to bind Satan and plunder his house, taking on Satan's kingdom of darkness and replacing it with the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. You could think about this as a kind of axis of evil that Jesus is confronting. This week, he confronts chaos and disorder in the, tempu- in the seas. Next week, it will be Satan and the demonic and death itself. It's important for us to understand that that chaos is not just a a natural occurrence in the Middle Eastern imagination. It's something that is truly uh, evil and horrific, something that we cannot uh, be in control of, we cannot uh, abide in. Um, We can see that in Genesis 1, from the very beginning, God is taking chaos and bringing order to it. So this week we see Jesus coming as the stronger man to bind chaos so with this in mind, let us turn to our passage. I want to invite you to open your, pa- your Bibles to Mark 4.35. And the first two verses, after a long day of teaching parables and to the crowds and interpreting them to his disciples, Jesus asks his disciples to take him across the Sea of Galilee. Now I want to make a few observations about, about this passage in a passage, the verse previous. So in all of chapter 4, Jesus is offering these parables, and, and to his disciples, he's giving interpretations of what the parables mean. And in verse 34, Jesus says that he's given the disciples the secrets of the kingdom of God. How I take this is that Jesus is, has created a bit of an inner circle with his disciples. These 12 disciples, he's created an inner circle, and they're, they're given the, the inside clues, the, the inside track to what Jesus is really up to, what he's about, who he is. That's important to realize as we go through this passage. And another thing it's important to see is that 
if Jesus had left early in the day in the Sea of Galilee, this would be a non-story. Most often in the morning, uh, the seas were calm. That's when a lot of the fishing occurred on the Sea of Galilee. However, as the day progressed, especially in the afternoon into the evening, the storms, storms could kick up like that. Wind storms that could destroy a whole fleet of boats. So knowing this danger, because these disciples, after all, many of them were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They knew what they were getting themselves into. The disciples took the exhausted Jesus into the realm of chaos and disorder, into the uncontrollable sea. And we see in the next two verses that without warning, a great windstorm overtakes the disciples on the sea. And the disciples quickly find themselves at the end of their rope. These experienced fishermen become helpless in the torrents of the sea that they had sailed their whole life. And so the storm rages, and the boat fills, and the disciples panic, and they need all hands on deck to deal with the storm. And what is Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. <laughs> so they go to him, and they yell with a, a tone of bewilderment and a little incredulity, Teacher! Do you not care that we are perishing? <laughs> now, friends, it's important to note something here. They're not asking for help. They're not asking Jesus to save them. They're just kind of angry that he's not doing anything. He's taking a nap. They call him teacher. They don't call him Lord. And when they say, do you not care? It's not a statement of hope that they will save him. If anything... They were probably a little angry and annoyed that he was sleeping while they were fighting for their lives. Come on, Jesus, get up and help us. <laughs> the disciples weren't looking for a savior in this moment. They were just looking for a companion to bail water. <laughs> so Jesus wakes up, see in verse 39, aroused by the annoyed and fearful cries of his unbelieving disciples and Jesus does something that they did not expect. This is very important to note. He didn't grab a bucket and start bailing. No, he stands up and calmly confronts the raging sea and wind with three words. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm in the sea. Friends, this was no mere miracle of a prophet or a teacher or a sage. No cleverly timed ruse as if Jesus knew when the storm would end. No, no one could take on the chaotic forces of nature but nature's creator. Now to understand what's going on in this passage, we need to turn to the psalm we heard read this morning in Psalm 107, 28 through 29. This is the psalmist what says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Now the psalmist here is speaking of the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, who is the creator of the universe, and is the only one who has the power over chaos and of the water. Only one as the creator. So we should be, it's very interesting, we should be, taken aback by the fact that only God could do what Jesus did. The only real conclusion then to what's going on in this story is that Jesus is indescribably one 
with Yahweh. In these actions, Jesus reveals that he is, this, is of the same being as Yahweh God. So a question arises. I think it's a fair one. Why doesn't just Jesus just come out and tell us? It's important to ask that. I think it's worth considering. But think about it, friends. If someone came along and said, I'm God, you think they're crazy or that they're a liar? Simple as that. There's <laughs> but if someone comes along and did something only God can do, it's hard to say that he's mad or a liar. In light of Psalm 107, Jesus calming the storm is the equivalent to him saying that he is Yahweh. Jesus reveals that he is mysteriously, mysteriously one with the God of Israel by controlling nature and, and this is important, and by saving unbelieving disciples. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is identified as creator and redeemer. Yahweh is the one who saves Israel out of slavery of Egypt. They didn't deserve it and they didn't earn it. Free freedom. So Jesus freely, in the same way, saves his fearful and unbelieving disciples from certain death. They didn't ask for it, and they sure as heck didn't earn it. That's the sign of who this Jesus is. He is creator, and he is savior. And in a moment, without a beat, the water stopped. The Lord God of Israel stood before their eyes as their creator and savior in the human flesh of Jesus of Nazareth. And in the calm water, as the disciples gaped at the total shift in reality, having been almost to death, and now they were saved, Jesus turned to them and said, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What does Jesus mean by faith here? Here, faith for the disciples means believing that Jesus is in some inexplicable way that God of the universe who saves them. At this point, the disciples had been companion with Jesus through healings, through powerful teachings. They should have known something greater was going on. But the issue is that the disciples, even though they were on Jesus's inner circle, even though they were keyed into the secrets of the kingdom, they had been, they did not believe that Jesus was the creator and savior of the world. They believed certain things about Jesus. He was a miracle worker, he was a prophet, he was the Messiah, but they didn't believe in Jesus. We see in verse 41 that the disciples looked back and forth between Jesus and the calm and silent sea, and they began to tremble in fear. Friends, it's important to note something in this passage, and I was very struck by this. If you read through this whole passage, it's not until this verse, until the very end, that actually the word fear, and it, mean, and it actually says great fear, appears. Fear is implied throughout this passage, but here is where fear lands. They were no longer just afraid of the storm. Now something greater than a raging chaotic sea stood before them. Someone who could bring order out of chaos looked them straight into their eyes. And through the fog of their disbelief, a small light broke through. If Jesus is who he just revealed himself to be, how can we live? For who can stand before, the, before God and live? They broke, the light of God's revelation broke through. And they feared. 
and they wondered. For the God who saved unbelieving Israel had just saved his unbelieving disciples. Jesus saved the disciples who didn't know who he was and didn't believe he could save them. And in the same way, friends, Jesus died for the world that rejected him and didn't believe in him. As Paul says in Romans 5 through 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Mark's gospel is a powerful testimony to this. Because by the time Jesus is on the cross, every single human being has abandoned him. He is alone on the cross, dying for everyone who has rejected him. And friends, this tells us something about ourselves, and it tells us something about Jesus. What does it tell us about ourselves? That we are ungodly creatures who need God and reject him at the same time. As an illustration, I would offer you this. In the world of counseling, there is a, a condition called reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. And the basic reality of this disorder is that the, the child who has this disorder simultaneously wants to form an attachment with a caregiver, desires love and intimacy, but because of their previous experience of abandonment and abuse, they push away most, if not all, forms of love, care, and protection. They literally will fight away love to maintain a feeling of safety. I think RAD helps us understand why we reject God, who is our very source of life. Now, two caveats, friends, on this analogy, because all analogies break down eventually, and I want to highlight this at the beginning. One, we must insist that God is not a divine abuser or neglector. Our source of reactive attachment is humans' sinful condition and rejection of God. And two, while rad in family relationships only happens in the most extreme cases of abandonment, the human condition is that we all have rad towards God. That said, humans desire, they want, we, we want to be loved and cared for, known. We want a purpose and a direction and community. However, because we are bent in on ourselves and we are enslaved to sin and addiction, we, we push away the triune God who is able to provide the very thing we need. And rather than accept the love that God has for us, we reject him and his love. We keep him at bay. And we think this protective distance is actually good for us. That rejecting God is the safe thing. But friends, it's actually death and slavery. And this is the human condition. This is the human contradiction. This is the brokenness sins reign in our lives. Friends, we were not. We were not, not created to live that way. We were not created. We were create. We were created for a deep, personal, life-altering relationship with God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, friends, Jesus died for the ungodly to save us from ourselves, to save us from the chaos of our own mis bad attachments. And on the cross, Jesus took our reactive attachment, our fear and hate of God, and forgave it and destroyed it in his death and resurrection. Jesus loves and saves the very people who reject and ignore him. Jesus saves the ungodly 
and gives them his life and his love. And in doing this, he creates a path and a way for our attachments to be healed. That, friends, is the, the great reality of adoption. You see that God the Father adopts us as his very sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. God gives us the securest attachment ever, the attachment of his son. The love of the Father that for the, the love the Father has for the Son is poured into our, heart, into our hearts. We are made new in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is why the doctrine of the Trinity is actually so important, because it's our life. When we open our lives to Jesus, he gives us his relationship with the Father. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell in us, healing our broken attachments, healing the abuse of the world, sin, and the devil. Friends, Jesus takes our anger, our hurt, our rebellion, our depression, and he gives us his love and his peace and his joy. That is what the the Christian life is about. That is is what Jesus invites us to today. The central point of our, point of our passage today is that Jesus is a Redeemer, the rest of his unbelievable. I want to offer friends that this should, this should hurt and us by the God. First, word of first. The sight belief comforting. I find it very comforting. It's been a very first, a word of comfort. The disciples' belief is comforting. I, I find it very comforting. And it has been uh, very comforting for me through my own struggles and doubt. Because still faith, jump a boat in a bay, keeps going their doubt through disbelief. His way loves them even as they struggle with doubt. Some of you are probably feeling some of doubt. You are sure what you believe about Jesus. If that is where you find your friends, take comfort. The part of the struggle of friends, even as you, as you even as take comfort in the comfort fact, fact in the fact that disciples, 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 disciples struggled. Struggled, struggled, struggled with doubt. I, ch- I, ch- I, ch- I, ch- I challenge. I beg. I beg you. Don't, don't let you with doubt. I, ch- I challenge. Challenge you. And I, 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 I beg you. Don't let doubt be an excuse of one who loves you with you with an end. Who. I challenge you. And I beg you. Don't let your doubt be an excuse to avoid the one who loves you with an infinite love. You see, the, the disciples did struggle with doubt, but they struggled as they continued to walk with Jesus. They tried to figure out who this guy was, what he was about. If you're doubting, don't let your doubts turn into apathy and avoidance. Keep walking the path with him. Keep seeking to know the truth. May I suggest a prayer we find in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus meets a man who begs him to heal his son. And the man says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus replied, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And moments later, Jesus freed the young boy from his slavery. Friends, I believe, hell my unbelief is a very 
very good prayer. But maybe you're not even there yet. Maybe you're not even at the point of saying, I believe. How my unbelief? Maybe it's, I want to believe. Maybe it's, I want to want to believe. Hell, my unbelief. That is also a very good prayer. Friends, if you desire to learn more about Jesus and walk this path, you're not alone. Talk to me, talk to Father Caleb. We're here for you. Now, friends, I first spoke to those who struggle with doubt, offer it the comfort and challenge of the gospel. But I submit to you, friends, that the real issue in this passage is the way that Jesus challenges his inner circle. In this story, it was not. It was not all about the godless people out there. Those weren't the people who needed to be saved in this story. It was the insiders, the churchgoers, the lifelong attenders, the tithers. It was Jesus' disciples who were in need of rescue. Friends, as Christians, it is easy to become overly familiar with Jesus and his gospel. To imagine that we have him in a box. That's what the disciples had. He was in the miracle guy box, and he was in the prophet box, and he was in the Messiah box. He was not in the Lord and Savior box. That box doesn't exist, actually. We know who he is and what he does. We know the kind of people he likes and the kind of people he doesn't like. Friends, that is not Christ. How do you imagine God? How small have you made him? How much of your image have you infused into him? Jesus confronts us today with the incomprehensible reality that he is the God of Israel who creates and saves. Do you need to meet him afresh? Friends, how does Jesus wake us up to our overfamiliarity, our hidden disbelief, our practical atheism? by declaring in our hearts afresh the gospel. You are beloved. You are beloved sinners adopted into the eternal relationship of God the Father and Son through the Holy Spirit. You are loved with a never-ending, never-giving-up, infinite love. We have everything we could possibly need in Jesus Christ. Wake up to who you are in Jesus. You are beloved. And when we wake up to this reality, we begin to live as beloved children. We begin to become like Jesus. Now, friends, as disciples, we are concerned, and I know there's great concern, about how to, how to evangelize, how to, how to bring people into this loving relationship. Friends, this is the beginning right here. This is where it starts. It's not programs. It's not what we do. It's how we live. It's who we are. We must live as beloved children of God. That is where this begins and ends. An author put it this way. It means living in such a way that one's life would not make sense, would not make sense if God did not exist. Do we live that way? Do I live that way? Friends, we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again as Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, massages it into our hearts. And a way that God does that the way that Jesus continually wakes us up to our life in him is through worship, is through Sunday worship, through our daily worship. All too often, friends, though, we, we approach worship like the disciples 
with minimum belief and expectation. Friends, I submit to you that we must approach worship with the awe and fear of the disciples on that calmed sea of Galilee. The author Annie Dillard, an American writer, describes this posture and its opposite quite well and cleverly. I quote, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches. The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our chairs. For friends, the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. May the waking God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great creator and savior of the world, draw us all, disciples and doubters alike, out into the infinite depths of his saving love. I say this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the infinite love that you show us. And we ask, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. Fill us with repentance and the desire to believe more and more in you and so we can be, so we can be witnesses to your world in the power of the Spirit. Amen.